All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Jake Dunlap Show. We are very excited that you joined us. If you haven't tuned in, this is the show where we talk to celebrities, thought, and industry leaders to really discover their journey to success. I am super excited that you're joining us. This show is like no other. I can promise you that. You might laugh. You might cry, but you will definitely leave inspired and gain a whole new level of insight into those people that you follow, love, and admire. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Jake Dunlap Show. I am very excited. Uh, We'll see if you all can guess this. This is a tough one. But today's guest is a man who has lived the dream life as a fighter jet pilot. I think some people would think it was a dream. At least it appears to be a dream, right? He's flown the F-14 Tomcat, F-18 Super Hornet, F-5 Jets as a top gun instructor. I mean, I don't know if people refer to you as the real life Tom Cruise, but we can go with that. Uh, We can go with that. Uh, He's traveled the world, served his country with pride and honor, but far from satisfied. Uh, He left active service, sold his house, car, boat, everything to jump headfirst into entrepreneurship and get his aviation company off the ground, or in this case, off the sea. Please join me in welcoming a man with one of the coolest jobs today, Robert Saravolo. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jake. It's uh, great to be here, man. I really appreciate it. All right, great. So as you know, we talked about this a little bit. Um, you know, we, t- we, we focus on the stories and we focus on, you know, what made you, you know, get into this world and how you got into this world. And, um, you know, we're going to start back in the day in Fort Lauderdale, right? Which, I mean, the, the era that you grew up in South Florida, too, is like one of the most, you know, more interesting areas. So, so what was it like growing up in, in Fort Lauderdale? So look, you know, I was I was born in mid seventies, right? So I was growing up in the eighties, and the eighties in Fort Lauderdale. I don't know if you remember these old movies, you know, like where the boys are eighty four, and you know the bikini contest and all this other stuff. I mean, it was it was a little wild back then, honestly. Uh, it's changed a lot, you know. But um, I grew up in you know in a place where you spent a lot of time at the beach. You kind of grew up surfing, you know, and so it kind of kind of made me fall in love with, if you will, the ocean, the water and everything else. You kind of see like the progression of my life always brought me back to the ocean in some way, depending on, you know, where I, where I was or what I was doing. Um, but Fort Lauderdale was a, it was a good place to grow up. I had a lot of close friends I still keep in touch with. Um, but yeah, you know, my, my dad, my parents moved here in the sixties. Uh, and you know, they're from Italy originally. Uh, my dad was, my mom was born in Jersey and they lived in Jersey. So like, stereotypical Italian family, you know, they moved to Jersey and then, and then they lived in South Florida. Right. And there's a lot of, there's like a big Italian contingent in South Florida, a lot of good food and things like that. So it was really, really just a fun place to grow up. And he was, and he was in, in like living in Italy, right. During world war two is right. Isn't that part of his? Yeah. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was, like he grew up there, right. In Southern Italy. And I grew up listening to his stories of him being a teenager in world war two. And his, um, you know, I mean, his town was overrun by the fascists and the Nazis, right? And it was the American military that liberated his town. I had an uncle whose father, so my great uncle was, you know, sentenced to die and all this other stuff. It was in, insane, you know, growing up in that time for him. And his, his, he had these fond memories of the, the American military bombers flying over his town because he lived on top of a little mountain in the middle of, you know. So my family's Italian rednecks. For, to put it in perspective, like in the South, right? They lived up in the mountain kind of thing. And um, he grew up and he, he has these memories of this, you know, the Italian bomber or the American bombers rather coming overhead and the Italian and the American military coming in and coming to the shores of Calabria at the time. And it made him really fall in love with the U.S., 
you know, and he was determined to to come to America and make something of himself here. So really impacted him that that experience. That's yeah, that's wild. I, I wanted to make sure we we, t- we talked a little bit about that because it sounds like you know obviously if you fast forward to what you ended up you know where where your career <laughs> took you, I think it'll be that you know the, yeah. the impact you know there. So so you what know, again, what, I, do, you know right? <laughs> I guess I guess so. You know, if your dad is that's his dream, you know that tends to that can yeah. happen. So 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 what you know again like were you into sports? Like what what was what was early uh, what was early you up to? Yeah, it's funny. Um, my my parents weren't very athletic growing up. You know, it just wasn't it wasn't the culture, if you will. Like I didn't grow up. My dad wasn't into football, things like that. So any sports that my brother, who was two years older than me, and I got into was kind of on our own through our friends, right? So I actually didn't play team sports in high school. You know, it was very bizarre. You know, right? I'm like one of the only guys who hasn't, uh, considering I run teams now and have been part of teams my entire life. Um, but you know, I surfed a lot of water sports, scuba diving, things like that. And again, that was kind of kind of the who I surrounded myself with quite a bit was that, you know, but when I was a little kid, I mean, we would play, you know, we'd play, I lived on a cul-de-sac, you know, so we'd play stickball. I mean, stuff, right? Right. And, yeah. and I'd watch football, I'd get into it. But it's funny, my, my dad wasn't into it. My parents weren't into it. So they didn't really support that for us, which was interesting. So my brother and I became very athletic kind of on our own later in life. If that makes any sense. Yeah. You know? And what yeah. type, I mean, what type of kid were you? Were you, you know, getting in trouble? Were you, you know, straight <laughs> A student, you know, before high school? Like what, you know, what were some of those early years like that you're, or memory? Oh man. Um, I think a little bit of both. So I wasn't, I wasn't a troublemaker, uh, you know, troublemaker. I actually did. I had good grades. You know, I studied a lot. My, my parents were really big on, on school. I, you know, my, my mom and my mom and my dad really, kind of instilled this you know reading and, and everything else and knowledge you know and so on and so forth but you know my brother and i were little terrors man the, you know we were two years apart i remember when i got to high school he was already in high school so of course i wanted to hang out with his friends so then you know i'm hanging out with the 16 year olds with cars and i'm 14 you know getting chased by the cops because we're drinking in a parking lot kind of thing i mean that, that's the trouble i got into i wasn't you know robbing banks or anything but Definitely, definitely had a few run-ins, you know, and, and stuff. Just typical teenager stuff. That happens, yeah. man. And yeah. So, so in high school, so yeah, so it sounds like yeah. you're hanging with the older crowd. So, what was high school like for you? You know, as you think about kind of those years, and you know, any any like kind of like big memories or events that stand out from from that period? Yeah, um, I mean, no big memories. I, I think high school for me is, uh, you know, again having having an older brother like Frank. He was like my idol, right? uh, you know, two years older than me. So high school for me was really, I, I, I don't know how to put this. Like always, I always want to be older and grow up. I think if that makes any sense and, yeah. and, you know, and I always felt like I wanted to, you know, I don't know. I, I, I kind of grew up by the way in the nineties, right? Not at that point I was in high school and that's when, um, desert storm happened. That's really when I started getting into the military piece and really following that. So high school for me was really just trying to find, find my way. And it took me a while to find my way, by the way. You know, I ended up I ended up going to University of Florida in college. Um, wasn't sure really what major I wanted to do. I always knew I wanted to fly for the Navy since I was six years old. You know, but then I, I kind of lost my path there for a little while. I thought about some other things, and and uh, yeah, but I think high school for me, I, I don't look back at high school as being a big defining moment. Yeah. Other than you know maybe making some good and bad choices with with you know figuring out what it meant to have a girlfriend and things like that, typical <laughs> high school stuff right yeah. but there wasn't there weren't any really defining moments for me in high school i think i think more of that came later in college and definitely in the navy yeah and at what point i mean so you're at you know university of florida great school um you know again you had you'd had this dream though 
you know, it sounds like. And again, obviously, it sounds like, you know, your dad's telling you stories from, uh, you know, a very young age. And I mean, it was also, I guess, like, when would Top Gun have came out? Top Gun was... So, 1986. 86. Never forget. I was 11. And, you know, it's funny. So, my dad wasn't into sports, okay? But my dad was into flying and the military, right? So, you see kind of where I ended up. So as a kid, I mean, I was five and six years old hanging out at the airport. So on Saturday, I wasn't playing Little League. On Saturday, I was hanging out with a bunch of old pilots at a cafe hearing stories, right? I was, I Your was, dad would go there. Your dad would take Yeah, me. exactly. With my dad, you know, and he ended up buying a little four-seat plane and he, he took me flying. I'll never forget, you know, my first flight, I think I was six. He had me on a cushion and he always told the story that we were flying down the beach in Fort Lauderdale and I saw a destroyer, like a, uh, a tanker. And he said, I grabbed the controls and rolled in like I was trying to drop a bomb on it. You know? <laughs> right? And I was like six years old. And, but of course, I grew up you know, watching movies like um, you know, Bridges of Tokori and things like that, the, the old school movies. And of course, so I always wanted to be a, uh, an Air Force pilot. And the rights, I was big in this, I was a big space nerd. I could tell you all the you know, Apollo astronauts. And, um, and then Top Gun comes out in 1986. And I think that really fundamentally changed my life. Um, I, was, I was like, man, I was like, cool, I want to be a fighter pilot, but you mean I could land on a boat so I could always be around the ocean, which I absolutely loved. I get to date my instructor, ride a motorcycle. <laughs> like, this, this is the cool, coolest thing ever. And that was it. At that point, I was like, I'm going to join the Navy, you know? And that was like my past, you know, was, again, since I was a little kid. Um, when I got to college, uh, I still had that past, you know, but I, I got, you know, I, I got into some trouble in college. I think, you know, I, again, I'm, not a dumb guy. I had really good grades all through high school. My first couple of years, I just I was partying a little bit too much. The University of Florida is known for that, you know, maybe. and um, I met some I met some guys I trained with who were Navy SEALs. And I said, man, I said, maybe this could be a better path. I actually did a lot of training with those guys and and, you know, a ton of respect for those guys. I still know a lot of them and, and, and still work with them even in today with former SEALs and, and some of the hurricane relief stuff we do. And, you know, so I went through this path for a couple of years. And of course, I just fell back in love with flying. And it's just, look, it, that was, that's where I, where I needed to be was to go fly fighters. And I how did you, what, what, what age were you whenever that happened? Like, what do you remember? So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, yeah, I went through, we had some family issues as well, right after I graduated college. So I actually didn't join the Navy right after college. And I was, again, like, it's funny. I feel like I was a late bloomer a little bit in, in, a, in, in a sense that, man, you know, this thing I wanted to do since I was six years old, maybe that's not the right path for me. Cause we, you know, my dad was having some health issues and a couple of other family things going on. And I said, man, I said, maybe this isn't the right path. And I spent two years after college, you know, in, in, a, in the civilian world, thinking to myself, like, wow, what, what was I thinking? And sure enough, I, I went to talk to my dad about it. I said, dad, look, I, I'm not going to be happy. And he goes, I know. He goes, I really want you to do this. And I said, but look, dad, I said, what happens if something happens to you? You know, and, and I am overseas. He said, look, when I left in, when I left Italy, you know, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have cell phones. He's like, I, I had to write a letter to my family. He said, we'll be fine. And he used to he used to quote Mussolini, which is funny. Hated him, but he always quoted right. him in like a joking manner. And he said, and you in his thick Italian accent, he goes, remember what Mussolini used to say? You know, he goes, you know, I'd rather be one. I'd rather spend one day as a lion than a hundred years as sheep. And he goes, in your case, I'd rather spend one day as an eagle than a hundred years as a chicken. <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I was in the right. So I, um, you know, I went into, uh, I sworn in actually August 10th, 2001. 
almost a month the day before September 11th. And of course, a month later, what happened happened and the towers fell. And I said, you know, I'm on the right path. I'm on the right path. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's interesting, man. I mean, I can say a lot of people would be, you know, you join, you, you want to, you want to be involved, but then that happens immediately. And then how soon after that are you deployed the first time? So, well, I went through, you know, for, so to be a pilot, you go through two years of training, you know, so I went to officer cannon school in November of 2001 and graduated, you know, early spring, um, cause it's about three months long and, uh, just late winter rather. And then went through flight school. So I didn't deploy. My first deployment was in late 2004. After once you get you know trained up to fly the Tomcat, and then my full my full Iraq deployment was two thousand five two thousand six. And so what yeah. was I mean? Tell me about like those first you know those first few years you know of well one let, let's not skip over the the school. I want to hear I want to hear what it was actually like. So obviously it's a different time, right? Like you know we're in you know kind of wartime at that time, and you're yeah. but you're still like in the school side of it. But what was that experience like? You know what was what were those first few years like? Um, yeah. Like what, are, um, what, what don't people know too? Like what are the things that you think a lot of civilians and people probably have no idea on, uh, you know, when it comes to, to learning to fly a, a jet? How, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> so, so look, it's, there's a, there's, it's funny. There's a lot of, a lot of preconceptions and, and misconceptions, if you will, about the military, about leadership, about training, about what, what boot camp or officer candidate school is like and why we do certain things. I mean, all the way back to officer candidate school, which is, did you ever see, you remember the Richard Gere movie, Officer and a Gentleman? Yeah, yeah. That, that's Officer Candidate School. So it's like boot camp for officers, right? And you have a Marine, Marine Corps drill instructor that breaks you down, tears you down, puts you back up. A lot of academics, a lot of physical fitness. You know, but, but here's a great example. So you have lockers and you do these locker inspections where the, the Marine DIs come in and they inspect the lockers and they, and they pull out your underwear, which is supposed to be folded six inch by six, six inch squared, right? And they have a ruler. And it's if it's like less than an, literally an eighteenth of an inch, that's how close it is. If it's just off the line, they tear your locker apart, tear it apart, and you're down doing push-ups and everything else. And, and people ask like, that's so stupid. You know, is that hazing? I'm like, think about this. If I am dropping a bomb and I am 150 yards off, I could kill a bunch of civilians or kill the good guys, right? So there's an attention to detail aspect of it. And they don't teach you that attention to detail later on when you're learning how to employ weapons. They teach it to you on day one, right? And I think that sometimes like that, that little bit of, of experience for me is helping me develop my training program here. Don't wait until we get to a point like start that on day one. These are the expectations. This, this is what we want to build. We want to build a professional. Right. And I think I think all the way back to officer candidate school, they do such a good job of teaching you this stuff from day one, using the, all these little techniques that do, have nothing to do with flying or nothing to do with employing weapons. Right. So then after that, you go through um, flight school. And for me, I mean, look, it's that's that was the, that was awesome. Right. You get into these high performance airplanes. And you get to get to learn how to employ them, fly formation, fly, land on the carrier, drop bombs. I mean, you get to do all this fun stuff. And you go to what's called primary flight school, where you're learning to fly a turboprop airplane. And we're doing aerobatics and all this other stuff. And then how well you do in primary depends on whether or not you get the slot that you want. And I wanted jets, obviously. You know, that's all I wanted to do was fly the Tomcat. And so I was I finished number one in my class, which allowed me to get my choice. And of course, I selected jets. And then um, this was all done, by the way, down in Texas. So I spent about 
almost two years down in Texas. And uh, I was flying the T-45 Gosslock, which is a Navy trainer. And I got a chance to fly it to Fort Lauderdale to come to an air show. So the big A&C show in Fort Lauderdale is on the beach every year. It went away for a few years and came back. I flew on that air show twice, which is kind of cool. My hometown show. I flew the Time yeah. show and the F-5. But I came down. My dad was here. And I got to fly the jet in to actually, the, funny enough, the same airport where I am, the same office space that I'm in right now is actually where I landed that jet. And my dad was there to see it. We went to the air show together. And it was an amazing experience because his entire life, he just wanted me to go do this, right? And I did it. And I brought the jet back and to his hometown. He was able to see it. And he died two weeks later. And uh, so it's so all good. Choked up thinking about it. And, and for me to have that experience with him, considering that he was the biggest influencer in the direction that I took was huge. I, I'll never forget that day. I'm so thankful to have that day. So I got to, you know, so I, I came back at, for his funeral and I was supposed to go on um, debt to, to go land on the carrier. And I came back and, you know, my ops, was like, what do you want to do? I'm like, sir, put me in a fucking jet. Excuse my expression. I was like, I just got to, I got to start flying again. So I was pushed back a class because I'd missed the, the carrier training and, and the guys were great. You know, they got me back up to speed in the jet and um, went out to the carrier a couple of months later. And I'll tell you, like, I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but landing on a carrier is like the, the okay, take it a step back. Imagine 110 years ago, a bunch of Navy guys sitting at the bar, having a few cocktails. And one, one guy's like, you know, we should really land a plane on a boat, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it's, it's like, that's the dumbest thing we could ever think about doing, right? The Navy does it safely day in and day out. And so you're flying out to the ship. You do a ton of training at the airfield, you know, and you're ready to go. Like, they, they're like, you're ready. You're signed off, ready to go. But no right. instructor will get in your back seat, by the way, right? So, because no one wants to get killed. So, really? They won't? No, 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 no. You're, you're solo. <laughs> you're going to for the first time, you know? So, wow. So you fly out, and I'll, I remember flying out to the ship, and I see it, and I'm like, God, the thing is small. And I'm getting a little closer, and it's not getting any bigger. And, and I'm think I'm literally having this conversation, conversation with myself, Jake. I'm like, you know, I wonder if I could turn around, would they give me an air force slot? Like they're not going to waste all this money on training. Right? <laughs> like, I wonder if they just let me like go and fly the air force, you know? So I, I kind of talked myself into it. I actually had a little conversation with my dad, you know, and it came in, I land on the ship and, and, uh, and you land on the ship for the first time. It's scary as hell. Your knees are shaking. And my very last landing, ever on a ship, which is in the Super Hornet, my knees were shaking at night. So it's, it never got easier. It never but, gets you know, easier. No. It gets, I guess yeah. it becomes more routine, but it was still like, you know, hearts pumping, knees are shaking. I mean, it's it's insanity, you know? Well, I mean, look, I have landed it in a, on the Top Gun Nintendo game, okay? And I can tell you that that is <laughs> yeah. equally. The refueling part The refueling part is what appears to be the hardest, though. That was hard. I remember that. That on, the, on the Top Gun Nintendo game, like I could never get that thing done, you know, with a little controller trying to refuel. <laughs> like, That's it. right, the little thing, it just would shake. Yeah. I mean, you, but you did it in real life, though. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, over Iraq, we we would do a seven hour mission, so we'd be airborne for seven hours, we'd refuel three to four times. Wow, you know, yeah, and I, ha I had a little playlist, so when I was refueling, I needed to calm myself down, so it was a little Jack Johnson or or maybe some some Sinatra, you know, and I was tanking and then when i was landing on the ship at one o'clock in the morning i would down a red bull and listen to metallica because i wanted to get hyped up for the landing you know so so it's funny um so you carried a red bull with you that you would save. yeah yeah i like had a little sandwich end. yeah save it for the well, end yeah. but uh 
so that training was good. You know, they, they, again, the Navy does a really nice job training you in all aspects of, of flying a jet. And then you get to your, was called the, the RAG, but it's FRS, which is a fleet replenishment squadron. And they teach you how to fly the actual jet you're going to fly. So the F-14 training, you know, it's another nine, six to nine months of training. And then you get out to your fleet squadron. So it's, it's quite a bit of time, you know, and yeah. the Tomcat training was something else. I mean, you know, you grew up with the movie, so did I. And you, you walk up to that jet and you're like, oh, my God, this thing is huge. And you get in the cockpit and you start taxing out and you're looking behind you and it's like driving a semi truck. You know, you've got all this jet behind you. And then the instructors were great because the, the Tomcat community was very kind of let's go have a good time mentality. You know, it was, it was the last of the old fighter pilots, if you will. And, look, you know, in training, we had that jet up to 60,000 feet. We had it Mach 2 plus. I mean, it was just insanity. And that thing was such a good performer. And it was a lot of fun, you know, and then then we deployed in that jet and we deployed Iraq in that jet. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's I mean. There's a lot there, a lot of you know, in, that happened in a relatively you know kind of short time. So what I mean, yeah. what were and then you, I mean you did some other things too, right? I mean obviously how long how long were you you know were you just you know and I don't say just lightly how yeah. long were you again deploying as a pilot and then because I know that you did you know obviously you went through uh, you know went up to a lieutenant commander um, yeah. you know foreign liaison officer. So then you know tell me a little bit about kind of that transition to where you're maybe doing some of the other you know, yeah. uh, higher level, more diplomatic components. Yeah. The, so the Navy, you know, military in general, and the Navy especially does a, does a great job of requiring you to be very well-rounded, if that makes any sense. So, you, you know, I show up, at, so you're not just a pilot, right? These pilots, like they always say flying is secondary. So I show up in my squadron day, day one and they're like, my call is Rocco. And they're like, hey, Rocco. And I'm brand new Jay junior officer straight out of flight school, you know, really shiny wings on my chest. And they're like, you know, hey, Rocco, listen, our legal officer is transitioning. So we're going to send you to legal school. I'm like, okay. And, you know, so like you essentially become like the lawyer for the squadron, you know, after two weeks of legal school, like doing captain's mass and going to court and stuff like that. I mean, it's insanity. And then you, you, Basically, so you really were Tom Cruise. I mean, th then you go and be like, what's yeah. the movie? Yeah. You, can't you can't handle the truth. Handle right? the truth. <laughs> and then you go, you're, I mean, yeah. it doesn't matter what the movie is. I right. Mean, yeah. So so, but, and, and, they, and they kind of rotate you around in all these different squadron jobs. So I was an administrative officer at one point. So I'm running basically the P&L of the squadron, right? In the HR department, put it lightly. I was a maintenance officer. So I was kind of in charge of the maintenance department. So you start to the training officer, things like that. So you start to look at all these different things that I've done in the Navy just because it was my requirement. And you, now you start to understand why I can run a business now because I've had little bits of experience across all different facets of running an organization, which is phenomenal, right? So the Navy does a really nice job of that. Um, but when I came back from deployment, we transitioned to the Super Hornet. And at that point, I was transitioning to what's called a um, shore duty. So I took, I took shore duty... Uh, so it's funny. I had some options. I could go to Fallon, Nevada, which which is a really cool spot. I could stay in Virginia Beach. I could go to Lemoore, California, or there was this job in Key West. And I'm like, wait a second. I could fly fighters to Key West. And I remember um, there's a guy. He's a great guy. But I call Santa Guido, who owns uh, Jimmy Loves in San Diego. He's a former fighter pilot. Great dude. And I met him when I was still in Tomcat training. And this has stuck with me my entire life. He said. Never, never take a bad deal now for the promise of a good deal later. Basically, try to have as much fun as you can in your career. So I took this adversary job flying the F-5 down in Key West, where we essentially simulate the MiGs. 
So we simulate the bad guys, right? Yeah. And and so I'm living in Key West. You know, you, you show up day one. By day three, you buy a boat. It's just because, right? It's just it is what it is. You're fishing and spear fishing and, yeah, and yeah. you know the whole thing. And you're flying fighters two or three times a day. I mean, it's a dream job. It's a dream job, right? And so I did that for three years, and that's the squadron that sent me through Top Gun. So Top Gun has what's called the adversary course, where you're essentially like it's a graduate level course to to simulate Red Air to simulate the bad guys. And so I went through, through Top Gun's adversary course. You know, got my little Top Gun patch and came back and and continued to instruct, which is tremendous. And then um, around 2009, I, it's funny, I was um, on leave with a buddy of mine. Uh, and you in just Italy. graduated too, right? Like you yeah, just graduated in months. 2009 too, right? Yep. yep. So about six months later, I'm in Italy on a motorcycle trip with a buddy of mine and I'm reading Screw It, Let's Do It by Richard Branson. It's kind of fun. I rode in my dad's hometown on the bikes and and that was a good time and everything else. And that's when I decided to start the company, actually on that trip. I always thought I would start a company when I retired. I didn't think I could be an airline pilot. Like I didn't want to be a bus driver, right? And, and yeah. nothing oh, is that, is that a bus driver? Is that the slang? Is yeah, that the, yeah. And yeah, I have I a lot it. of friends who fly for the airlines. And you know, I was just with them, actually one of them this morning. Um, they, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a fun job, but it's a great job because it pays you a lot of money and you have a lot of time off, right? It's a great lifestyle job. And I, I I thought to myself, I said, you know, I just, I need more challenges in my life. And most, all those guys have side jobs, by the way, because they, they look for challenges, you know, or they become like big elk hunters and they disappear for weeks at a time. You know, they're always looking for something to do, right? When they're just driving. And, um, so I always wanted to start a company when I retired in 20 years. And at that point I was at my nine year mark and you have to give 10 years active duty. And I said, look, why am I going to wait 20 years? Why don't I do it now? Screw it. Let's do it. Right. So I talked to my commanding officer at the time who was extremely supportive. Um, and I decided to get out at the 10 year mark. And I, I had to do one more year of, of a disassociated sea tour, if you will. It's basically, I had to fill a gap of one year. Right. And so there's these jobs that you could do called GSAs and they send you to different places. And I was um, what's called a, 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 I was a JTAC, a joint tactical air controller. So I went through JTAC school, the guys that call in the airstrikes. Yeah. So I was like, cool. I was looking for a job in Afghanistan or Iraq. So I could just be a JTAC for a year where you get, you know, attached to a unit. I found one. I was working with my detailer and about three months out, he's like, Hey, the job went away. I got another job for you in Afghanistan. I go, well, what is it? He's like, you're going to, you're going to teach Afghanis how to drive trucks. I was like, you know what, what else you got? You know, like there's gotta be something else. And yeah. he said, well, I got this, 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 this job in Tampa. And I said, why couldn't you lead with that by the way? And at that point, you know, I'll get to the, that CENTCOM job in a second, but at that point I'd already um, started the company. So this is now 2010. I founded the company in 2009 um, I went to the FAA and, uh, you know, there's, there's a person I still keep in touch with, you know, to this day, who was a phenomenal, uh, person at the FAA as a point of contact. She was great. But at the time FAA was slow, bureaucratic. They said, look, we're not going to look at your application. So you go buy an airplane. I said, okay. So I go buy this airplane, like this 1976 four seat, you know, it was, by the way, it's the same airplane that was in, um, fool's gold with Matthew McConaughey. If you oh, saw yeah, the yeah, yellow yeah. one. Yeah. So yeah. it was still painted yellow. And I buy it in California and fly it across the country and I get it here. And fast forward, it took a year and a half to get that thing on the FA certificate. So, you know, by then I was broke. I sold everything. I had the Porsche 911, the, you know, the, the, the motorcycle, the boat, it was all gone. At one point I was like selling a kayak for a part on the airplane, you know, 
um, just to get it going. And you just had the one plane. On the one plane. Yeah, the one plane. Yeah, so so during that time, I took this job at CENTCOM, which was um, uh, is a place called the Coalition Coordination Center. So I actually worked in a department under um, General Mattis at the time, who was a former SECDAF, who was just an amazing, amazing man. You know, May still is an amazing man. And that job was really neat. I got I got a chance to basically work in what was like a mini United Nations. You know, so there were 60 countries fighting under ISAF at the time. And each country had liaison officers. And there was two floors, you know, and two hallways in each floor. And each country had an office. And, there, you know, there's 25 Americans, 26 Americans. And I was the liaison officer to Belgium and Finland. But I would make my rounds. I would go, you know, there's a great, there's a coffee hour in the morning. I would hang out, you know, drink coffee with a bunch of folks. I would go down to the Italians, of course, because I had to go hang out with the Italians general down there who was a, p- a piece of work. Um, go see the, the Russian guys. And then the Ukrainians, we became very close friends. Every Friday, we'd shut the door and celebrate Ukrainian Independence Day, which was let's shoot some vodka and tell stories of growing up in the 90s when we hated each other. You know, everyone was, by the way, everyone was scared of Reagan back then, right? Or the 80s, right? right. You know, growing up. And then um, there was a Tajik officer. You know, who's it was just really pretty girl, you know, and and I would go in there and hit on her. <laughs> Turns out to be my wife, right? Fast forward, you know. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, so and was, yeah, yeah, you know, she was she was great, right? And um, and yeah, it was look, it was an amazing, amazing time of my life that year I spent it, out of the cockpit. I never thought I would enjoy a job out of the cockpit, and that really, you know, again, you become basically a diplomat, if you will, at this place. It was tremendous. And then what, you know, so out of all the, the businesses you could start, and again, we rewind just a second, what was it about, you know, this, the, let's call it like the seaplane or the, you know, like what, like, how did you decide on what you wanted to do? So, you know, when you think about, and, and obviously all the things you're doing now too. Yeah. You know, it's honestly, Jake, it's a good question. Um, look, looking, looking back, I realized that um, I might've started for the wrong reasons. Okay. Which is funny. Because at the time I was like, well, I know aviation, right? It's what I know. And then fast forward to 2021, aviation business is like any other business. It's a business, right? You have you have people, you have assets, you have a PL, you have strategy, right? It's all the same. I mean, it's all the same, yeah. right? But at the time, I knew I felt comfortable in aviation. But but going back, you know, aviation has been part of my blood my entire life. So is the ocean. So it's just the same reason why I joined the Navy, because it brought two of my passions together. You know, the seaplanes brings two of my passions together and the adventure, the romance of flying your seaplane out to the middle of nowhere and fishing off the floats. Like you can't find that anywhere else. Yeah. Right. And and I read is another you can say I read a lot and I get influenced by these books. And I read Jimmy Buffett's um, Where's Joe Merchant? Do you remember this book? No. Uh-uh. So so Jimmy wrote a book called Where's Joe Merchant? And the character, the title character, Frank Bama is a former Navy pilot that buys a seaplane and gets himself in all these adventures. I was like, I want to be Frank Bama. So, but, I so I finally get a chance, you know, now I know Jimmy and, and, and we've done some things together and I finally got a chance to meet him the first time. He's like, you are Frank Bama. I'm like, thank you for saying that. You know, I was like so excited to hear from him. Right. But, um, but seaplanes have, has that, that romance and that adventure. But then as we started, as I started to make a business out of it, I said, look, look at the places where we operate, right? We operate in the Caribbean. We operate in the Bahamas, 700 islands across a long, a long, a large rather archipelago. We operate in New York City, so you know we could operate. By the way, in Chicago, Panama is where we are now. So you start to look at these different areas and what the, what do they all have in common? They're all challenged with airlift, right? 
And by the way, they all have a body of water nearby. So now you start to look at these seaplanes as a phenomenal transportation solution, right? To get people out of those major metropolitan areas that's congested and really tough to get to the airports, you know, or, or to be the last mile connectivity piece for a place like the Bahamas or to create connectivity within the Bahamas or between the BBI and Puerto Rico. And you start to look at this around the world, Thailand, Philippines, you start to see all of these opportunities where the amphibious aircraft, at least today, is a great tool for that. Great tool, right? So again, you can see- Did you have that foresight then though? Well, Rob, did you, did you know, like early on, so you've got this one plane, right? Yeah. Like in the early days. And you know, what was, you know, what, you know, did you have that foresight ahead of time or was it again, like more about like, I think I can make something here and it'll be fun or, you know, how purposeful were you in the early days? Yeah, good I'm definitely much more purposeful now, but, but at the time, right before I started the company, my mom, who lives in Fort, who lived in Fort Lauderdale at the time, fell and broke her hip at three o'clock in the morning, right? So I got in the car and I drove four hours. And I literally was thinking to myself, man, I could fly there in 45 minutes if I had an airplane. And that was literally right before I started the company. So our very first route that we launched was actually between Key West and Miami Seaplane Base. So Miami, downtown Miami has a seaplane base, right? So instead of going driving three and a half, four hours in traffic to Key oh, West. Yeah. yeah. Or, or driving all the way out to MIA, going through TSA and all this other stuff. We could take you right from downtown to Key West in about 40 minutes. So that was actually our first route to create that connectivity out of a metropolitan area to a vacation area. So it was even like literally what we did with our little four-seat airplane. So that's really the time where I, I saw, wow, this is a great opportunity. But you also have to keep in mind back in 2009, 2010, we were just coming out of a recession. That's right. You know, yeah. so so the opportunities really started to come around where people started investing in places like the Bahamas. And then we started partnering with resorts and homeowner groups and things like that. 2013, 2014, 2015, as that investment money started flowing in the Bahamas and people started saying, well, great, I want to build this resort. How am I going to get people here? Well, I've got an answer for you. I've got, you know, amphibious aircraft. Right. And that's really where you start to see that the business grew with the the. I would say growth of that travel and that, that second home market. How did you go about, I mean, again, you know, you, you had learned a lot of business skills, um, in the Navy, uh, but you know, business development and partnerships, you know, there's obviously a lot of diplomacy and, and things that are, are very applicable. How do you, you know, do you remember what it was like? So you have this one route, maybe, you know, makes logical sense. And then, you know, you're kind of, as the economy's turning, how did you, even go about like forming these partnerships or how did these, you know, was just out you out there networking? Are you cold calling people? You yeah. know, how did you, those kind of first few routes, like how did those, how did that come about? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, um, I spent a lot of time on the road. So, you know, the keys, great example, I would drive up and down the keys and meet with every single resort. Right. And I would meet, I mean, I'm still a big believer even today in a pandemic, you know, we can do this all day long, but nothing beats you and I getting together, having a beer, shaking hands. Right. And, and yeah, our sure. business is built around those relationships and partnerships. You know, we, I love doing business with the people we do business with, to be honest with you. You know, we have, we actually enjoy each other. And that started way back then. You know, my, my first route to Bimini, for example, um, which is we actually relaunched Bimini service. So they hadn't seen service for seaplanes since 2005. We relaunched it in 2011 with our small airplane. And our main customer was a resort there at the time called the Bimini Big Game Club. It's famous, you know, Hemingway used to hang out there. And the managers there, for example, Mike and Diana Weber, are still close friends of mine to this day. And, you know, I would spend a lot of time over there and they would promote the business. And, and again, I, I mean, it's not a great way to do business. You do business, do business with people you like, you know. So 
I did spend a lot of time, but you know, what's funny is, is not everybody's that way. Right. And one of, I've learned a million lessons, honestly, over the last 10 years. And I keep learning them every day and I'm an emotional Italian. Okay. And I've learned, I've learned over time how to detach emotionally to be a better businessman, if that makes any sense. And at the time when people didn't want to do business with me, I would take it personally, right? Because I had this mentality. It's the way I am. So one of the things I've had to learn is to also, look, be as objective as possible. And instead of, you know, if you can't build a relationship with somebody, can you at least solve their problems? If you can solve their problems, you know, right, you can get that business. That's it. That's it. So, so at what point do you get to plane? <laughs> so even as you're expanding, is it still just, I mean, how many planes do you have at that point? <laughs> like in these early kind of early, is it still the one plane and you're just like all over the place or yeah. how are you making it? Work? Yeah, we had, we had one airplane. I had a credit card with a $6,000 <laughs> limit on it. And every, every three days I was trying to pay it down. And I was a Navy reservist at the time making 30 grand a year supporting a business. And, and, you know, my, my first employee who's now a partner in the business and, and our COO, um and his wife you know so it was it was a challenging time but we flew that airplane everywhere to the point where people like people would ask me how many airplanes do you have i see i saw your airplane in tampa the other day i saw another airplane in the bahamas like oh yeah we got a fleet you know right like fake it till you make it i guess and um there was a a big casino resourceful bimini who's a great partner of ours now as a casino in bimini you know one of our first major partners i met with them uh, late 2012, and it was one of those kind of build that they will come. I was, I was pulled Nick aside, who's uh, the guy I just 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 mentioned, and, and he's been with me from the beginning. And I was like, man, I said we really need a bigger airplane. And there's a whole story behind how we ended up in that big airplane, which I, I could I could let's talk about it. I, yeah, no, we got to, we've got yeah, to, if you could edit later, right? So how did you figure that out? So we didn't have money at the time, right? So and I'm gonna try to not, as I don't want to ever 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 badmouth people, but. So there was a, a gentleman who bought a bigger, the caravan, which is the airplanes we operate now. We couldn't afford it, you know, and we had our little airplane and he was having the same troubles we were having with the FAA. So he came to us, we had dinner a couple of times and he said, hey, if you help me get this airplane on an FAA certificate, we could work together where you fly the smaller groups, I'll fly the bigger groups. I was like, that's a great idea, you know, very naive. All right. Handshake. Right. Yeah. No contract handshake. Cause I was, I was a handshake guy my entire life until I got burned one too many times. And now we do contracts for everything we do. And, um, so sure enough, we put a lot of time and effort into getting his stuff certified. He gets it certified and it starts competing with us head to head on the Bimini market. And, um, I mean, I've got, you know, my partners over there saying, yeah, you know, the, the, the guys in the big airplane, they came over and they said, why are you flying with Tropic? You should be flying with us. And I said, really? So fast forward six months, we just, you know, it's one of the things I think Richard said, Branson, years ago, right, in one of his books was, don't worry about your competition, worry about yourself, just focus on being the best. So we focused on That's with right. our little four, shitty four-seat airplane, you know, and our two <laughs> pilots uh, that we had at the time. We said, we're going to be great customer service, we're going to be reliable, we're going to be professional. And in six months, we put them out of business, and I ended up raising some, some funds from a couple of friend, people I met in that time um, and bought his airplane from him at a discount. <laughs> So our first caravan was our competitor's plane. Um, yeah, go. so we got that airplane. Um, we bought it, and of course, it took another eight months, and we almost went bankrupt twice to get that thing on a certificate. But at the time, we had met the casino in Bimini. They were they hadn't built it yet, and they said, "Look, we're going to build a casino. Can you operate a big airplane on a schedule?" We didn't have it yet, and I was like, 
Of course we can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, of course. That's, our core, that's our core business. Yeah. That, that's actually, yeah. uh, we just haven't talked about that yet. And, um, you know, they opened in September 2013. We, we got their aircraft certified September 2013, and we started flying. And around that time, the gov- you remember this government sequestration, the government shut down. So the FAA shuts down. Yeah. We had one pilot. That was it. Nick was the only pilot certified because the FAA has to give the check rides. So talk about turning, you know, obstacles into opportunities. Um, Nick flew 29 out of 30 days, whatever it was. And I went to the head of the FAA at the time here. I said, sir, I said, honestly, I don't know how long you guys are going to be shut down. We finally got this business off the ground. We, you know, we can't rely on the government right now. So we worked out a deal where they approved us to do our check, check rides in-house. Nick became a check airman for the company. And that's how we've been able to grow the business as fast as we have. We actually do all of our check rides internally. That, you know, are all, and for yeah. those of you who don't know, what, what is the check ride? It is process? basically like the that? final exam before you get certified to fly the fly passengers on the aircraft. You know, got it. Yeah. So you're able to certify pilots. Correct. Yeah. Sure. Correct. And um, and again, that came out of because government was shut down, and we took that obstacle and turned it into an opportunity, right? I mean, it's all you can do, right? When something bad happens, is take a step back and say, okay, well, how can we get through it in the next few days? And and is there any opportunity that's going to come out of it, right? We talk all day long about COVID. Yeah. But, what was the first moment for you, you know, as you're kind of growing this business, you know, mid, mid 2010s where you, you know, I guess, you know, like, do you remember like moments where you started to make the transition to, you know, entre- like truly like entrepreneur business owner? Uh, you know, I know in 2019 you won, you know, Ernst and Young entrepreneur of the year as well too. Um, there's probably some moments before that where you're like, okay, this is going to be a thing. Um, do you remember like that transition? Yeah. Man, um, yeah, you know it's funny. I I uh, uh, I joined YPO three years ago. You know, uh, almost four years now. Yeah, I know YPO. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I still to this day, and again, this isn't false humility. It's just how I feel. I always feel like I'm punching above my weight. If that makes any sense, I'm a, I'm a Navy pilot, man. <laughs> you know, but I do. I think I think going into 2018 and seeing the accomplishments of our team. I mean, like. I, I, I teach a class to our new hires about, you know, the lessons of an entrepreneur, right? That's funny. I actually teach the history of the company and I teach our core values. We have several core values. And I, I always come in and spend an hour and a half while over new hires. And I, I start the history class with lessons I learned as a fighter pilot. And I finish the history class with lessons I've learned as an entrepreneur, right? And, and I always say that entrepreneurship isn't like, I don't like the definition that you look in the dictionary, you Google, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? You own a business. How many people do you know that own a business that you would say aren't really entrepreneurs, right? Just because you own a business, I, like, I feel like it's a mindset. I think, yeah, right? And, and, the, and the mindset is broken down into multiple things, you know? Can you, can you find solutions and problems, right? Uh, can you de- detach emotionally? I told you early on in the business, I would make emotional decisions versus being able to take a step back, right? Are you passionate? So can you, by the way, Emotion is good if you ch- channel it in the right direction. Like, I don't think you'd be an, an entrepreneur unless you're passionate. But if you're overly passionate, you're not going to make good decisions. So finding that balance, right? And then I think, you know, summing it up for me is, and I think I said this when I, when I got that award uh, um, in 2019. I said, look, you know, what everyone talks about when you fail, you kind of dust yourself off and keep moving forward. Same thing as when you succeed, right? Like, I think you're not an entrepreneur until you get to the point where, Hey, great. We had a win today. Tomorrow's a new day. Let's keep grinding. And I think if you put all that together and I didn't feel 
like I was becoming an entrepreneur, I think, until I started figuring all that out, maybe around 2018, as I took a step back and looked at the business and said, man, we've built a team. We've launched operations in multiple countries. We've accomplished all this stuff. Yeah, I think we're onto something here. You know, if that makes any sense. I was heads down the business for so long, I didn't even think about it. I think that's it, right? You get to the point where then finally you kind of hit that level where you, you have at least some air to work on the business yeah. versus, you yeah. know, just in it and think about things like onboarding yeah. and think about, you know, a, what a world-class look onboarding looks like versus, oh, uh, yeah, you know what to do. Just, yeah, yeah. just go over there yeah. and, and figure it out. And then in 2019, so again, you, you win this Entrepreneur of the Year Award, but also another another detail people may not know is that you were heavily, heavily involved in the relief efforts in for uh, Hurricane Dorian. Uh, and so what was, you know, tell me a little bit about that. Obviously you've got, you know, a lot of you know, work and a lot of time spent in the Bahamas, but tell, tell me a little bit about that period and, you know, what kind of, you know, what drove you to, to, to get so involved in those efforts? Yeah. Um, so kind of taking a step back, you know, back when it was just Nick and I in the 206, the little airplane, and we had a $6,000 max limit on a credit card. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, by the name of Ryan, he's a, his customs and border patrol agent reached out and said, Hey, I get these presents donated and I want to take them to the kids in Bimini. Can you help me out? I said, Nick, let's go. Right. So we, we were broke. We flew the airplane over anyways, you know, paid for fuel. I don't remember how. And we delivered Christmas presents to the Bimini and, and, and then we did it again a year later. And then in 2015, um, a, uh, a hurricane Joaquin hit the Southern Bahamas and nobody knew about it because it didn't hit Nassau. It was all the way down the Southern Bahamas. So, we flew an airplane out there and all the runways were underwater. Like it was, the place was decimated hurricane. It was 2015. And so we just, I went to BJ's that day. I loaded up my Jeep with a bunch of supplies. We threw it on an airplane and we just started flying stuff and, um, out of our, our own pocket, by the way. And, um, within a week we carried 33,000 pounds of aid and rescued, uh, no 50,000 pounds of aid rescued 33 people off the beaches. Like, you know, in, in this, in these, um, in these Southern Bahamas and, we almost almost bankrupt. I had somebody quit. They're like, you're going to bankrupt the company. But I always say that, look, we have a, a core value called be compassionate. The way I teach it is, you know, first of all, it's internal compassion. But externally, like we are privileged to fly in the Bahamas. It's another country. If they didn't want me to fly there, they could say, we don't want you to fly here. So they're draining us permission to fly. We have the assets. We have the people. We're going to help out when we can. So we do this, you know, her, uh, uh, um, Santa Seaplane every year with two islands now, um, you know, bring Santa Claus out. It's a big event. Back then it was a big event. But then the hurricane thing we did in 2015, I said, look, these airplanes are great assets in, 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 uh, in an island nation during a, a disaster. So guess what? 2016, Matthew hits. We, we service two locations in, in, uh, during, just after Matthew. 2017, we had an airplane in Puerto Rico, did some evacuations on there. And then Dorian hits and Dorian was, uh, you know, you know, it's that cat five plus yeah. sat for three days over the north. I mean, it was, it was, I, I went out there. We were one of the first companies on the ground. It looked like a war zone, looked like a bomb had dropped. It was unbelievable. Um, but at the time, by then we had some great partnerships over the years that we had built because of the work that we had done. Um, you know, two nonprofits that we worked with. Uh, one of my partners sits on the board of Delta. So we were able to, he was texting me one night and he's like, Hey, what do you need from Delta? Do you need more pilots? I said, we need bigger airplanes. Within three days, Delta sends an MD-88 down, parks it on my ramp. I mean, it was amazing. And, you know, 
taking a step back about two months prior to the hurricane, I had worked with a, a great group called Blue Tide Marine, these former Navy uh, SEAL Team 6 guys. Great, great group of guys, loving to death. And um, we had done some stuff together and we gave a presentation on what a good disaster response could look like. And this was in June of that year down at St. Martin. And two, three months later, you know, Dorian's on the way. And I text, I text Bob, the president, Dwayne, I was like, and CEO, I was like, hey guys, let's do it. You know, we had a, we had a back of the napkin sketch of what this could look like. And again, very fortunate, very blessed to have the military background that I have, that I can launch an operation like this and with those guys and everything else. So we took my hanger. I had a big, put a white, big whiteboard up, cleared out the hanger in the, in the office and we created an ops center. And, um, you know, we, we basically brought everybody in. We brought the Bahamian government in. We worked with the Bahamian government with a, a great uh, guy by the name of Andy Ingram, who's still a very close friend of mine. I had met him during one of the hurricanes who, you know, very connected to the government, worked with the government to get us customs immigration on site here so we could pre-clear all of the equipment out because, you know, if you have to stop at NASA and clear customs, it can take two or three hours, right? Yeah. So we got that done. We brought in Delta Airlines, Blue Tide Marine, and we, you know, day one, we were circling overhead, mapping the areas, taking visual pictures, you know, basically sending stuff back here, sending it to the Bahamian government and say, hey, here's what the runways look like. Here's what the, the different areas on the different islands look like. We de- debunked some fake news that was going around, like there was you know, all over Facebook, and I was on a radio show, and they're like, oh, hey, I heard mobs are shooting at helicopters. I was like, nope, that's bullshit. It's not happening. Our guys are on the ground there. But we dropped these Blue Tide Marine guys in, former SEALs, you know. You can imagine. We dropped them with rubber boats. You know, we worked with an, another group with a bigger airplane that brought in ATVs and, and dirt bikes, and we said they set up two command centers in the Bahamas. You know, they set up medical tents. They were doing medical evacuations. And within and with between us, Delta, um, together, we evacuated 900 people and carried a quarter million pounds of cargo, you know, in, in 10 days, in 10 days. So and again, it's because we have these assets, we have these people. And, and one of the proudest moments of my life was 10, 10 o'clock at night watching um, watching these these the, my, my employees just work, you know, after a 20 hour day. You know, the pilots coming back, they're tired and they're they're smiling, they're ready to go tomorrow. And, and everybody was kind of on the same page that, hey, this is what we have to do. You know, and there was no bitching, complaining. The ma- mechanics were working day and night to keep the airplanes flying. It was just, you know, when you get a group like that together and everyone's kind of focused on one mission, it was a beautiful thing. Yeah. And that's awesome. I mean, awesome as a person. It's awesome to see, you know, what you've built. Um, largest seaplane fleet, Right. On the on the East Coast today, yeah, so, serving everywhere. You mentioned New York, yeah. all over. Yeah, now. so we're the largest seaplane fleet on the East Coast. We're the largest, and I like this metric as I use it. We're the largest amphibious fleet in the world, which is cool. Yeah, amphibious. We land on land and water. Yeah, so there you yeah, go. yeah. So it's, it's been like cool, that, man. man. So, it's been cool. We built, built a great team. It and, sounds like it, man. It sounds like you're having fun. You're doing the yeah, right thing. Last eighteen months I has been a big that, kick in the nuts, but other than that, yeah. i can imagine well i mean look i think like people who who knows what's going to happen next man but i think it sounds like you've got the right team and the right attitude well i think to to make it i think people's you know what people value in travel has shifted in our favor right when you think about people want to travel you know these remote areas they They want want convenience convenience. like it's it's been good for actually the demand's been very strong 
which is solid. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm glad I'm glad I met you too because now now I got a guy. In the yeah, you got to come out. You got to so. come out and visit. <laughs> hey, that's yeah. a, that's an that's an easy sell, yeah. man. Uh, and so, what's next, man? So as we kind of wrap up now, you know, as you think about going forward, and obviously, I know in the business, you know, it's a little bit uncertain yeah. right now. But as you're thinking about yourself, or you're thinking about you know Tropic and where it can go, what's what's next for you? What are you most excited about? You know, as you look forward. Yeah, I think I think Tropic is a growth story. And it will continue to be a growth story, you know, where growth was somewhat stunted over the last 18 months. But, you know, the way we look at our business, we've we've professionalized what is a normally fragmented, disjointed business, which is this small aircraft last mile, you know, in these types of areas. And we've gotten very good at it, you know, and we can we have a training program that, you know, we part with Delta. We have actually a pilot that go off to Delta's regional. Um, We have a two pilot crew concept, which is unique in the industry at the time. You know, we have all these great programs that we can basically package up, which we have, and we've partnered with people in other countries now. So just this week, actually a couple of days ago, we our partner in the Bahamas, a company called Coco. We helped them launch an airline within the Bahamas. So it's basically like us, amphibious aircraft. You know, we hired our first Bahamian employee. He's in, he's actually in the in-doc class right now. Um, great guy, you know, and it's really excited about building this in other places. And you could basically take this model and stick it down in all these different locations. And that's how we grow. And I think we have a ramp right now because look, 10 years from now, you and I are going to be on an, on an EVTOL air taxi flying around New York City. It's going to happen, right? I'm a big believer in that. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to be for another 10 years. The technology is not there. The market's not ready for it. Places like the Bahamas, the, the electric grid is not going to support it, right? For years. years. So, so we have, I look at it, at least the next 10 years of, of a lot of growth for the company. Um, and then me personally, you know, I, uh, I I miss the Navy a lot. I miss the challenges of it. I recently took a part-time gig flying a contract F5 that does Navy contracts. And I literally, last week was my first time back in the jet in seven years. I got three three That's days awesome, of flying last man. week, and it was um, it, look, it was you plug in the afterburners. It was, it was it was amazing, and it's not just not just the flying, but the mission. You know, we're doing red air support for guys that are actually out there on the front lines. Great group of people, you know, to be around. So it was just a, it was really cool for me to get back to that. And I think, uh, you know, my wife always says, you know, I, I think that'll make me a better husband and better person in general. Right. So getting that out and, and being able to have that experience, you know, she's like, you need to go fly. Uh, yeah, like, absolutely. please, like, I know you're having yeah, fun here, but exactly. just go yep. do it. Right. Same thing as your dad told you yep. back in the day. Yeah. Right? It's in my like, blood. This is what this that's it's in your blood, man. Well, look, Rob, I this is a lot of fun, man. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think hopefully our listeners had a lot of takeaways here about you know the different ways that you've you know showed resilience and you know rebuilding and focusing on your passion and you know not letting go of that dream early on. I think is a a, you know a true testament to to the person you are and you know the you know the the company that you've built. So I really appreciate you joining us. Hey, thanks a lot, uh, Jake. I I really appreciate the time, man. Thanks for your interest in in our story. So thank you for having me. I had a lot of yeah, fun. Yeah, awesome, man. So. Yeah, thanks, man. All right, we'll see everyone next week on The Jake Dunlap Show. All right, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to another extremely fun and interesting episode. I thought it was fun and interesting, so I hope you did too, of The Jake Dunlap Show. Uh, really great just breaking down everything that makes people who they are, the success, the trials and errors, and I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite platform and make sure more than anything to go over to jakedunlap.com. That's where you're going to stay up to date on all the latest guests, additional details, 
prep notes. We're going to be sharing everything on jakedunlap.com. So go ahead, go over there. You can subscribe there as well, too. And we will see you next week on the Jake Dunlap Show.